Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today, I want to share a story with you. I hadn't read this story in nearly 20 years, but over the past months, it kept coming into my mind amidst the extraordinary and tumultuous times we're living in, as if this story had something to say now. Memory is like that. Literature, indeed, all art is like that. We read it whenever we read it, or see it, or listen to it, but it comes to us. It comes back to us when we need it. Resurfacing after long periods unrecollected from hidden places of the soul, to whisper in the ear, here I am, I have what you're looking for, or perhaps what you don't know you're looking for. Years, even decades will pass, then suddenly a recollection of a story heard, a poem learned by heart, a melody comes to mind. Somehow it is apt. It makes sense of where we are. It speaks to it. Out of what depths do those moments come? The theologian Paige Hochschild describes memory as a, quote, horizon of coherence, the ground of our knowledge, end quote. That is to put philosophically something that each of us experiences every moment of every day. If you think about it, without memory, we'd have no capacity to recognize and understand the present. There would be no connection between any two moments of life, no recognition of any object or person or experience, no consciousness of ourselves, just an indeterminate flux of uncomprehended experience, a kind of fire hose of confusion. Instead, memory makes things coherent, or rather, reveals their coherence. In it, we discover the ground that connects the parts with the whole. So the past illuminates the present so we can see it as it is. I was saying how particular memories or images or experiences or stories or lines of melody come to mind unbidden because they have something to say now, because they help us understand what is in front of us now. They come from that horizon of coherence to make our present coherent too. But all that was just to say, I wanted to share a story that has come to my mind lately for the ways it seems to speak to these extraordinary times. It is a story about death that raises the question of life. That story is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. It is a story about death, the death of a man who thought he had it all, really, status, career, material security, family, cultural refinement, a man who, though he seems he's figured life out in the worldly terms most of us judge ourselves by, has got it all wrong. This he comes to realize not through his achievements, but by becoming sick, with an illness that slowly takes away his health and brings him great physical suffering. And yet, that suffering is not the end of the book, but the means of his discovery of where deeper meaning in life lies. So, it is a story that asks the question of life. What is it for? What, above all, gives it meaning and makes it and us in the true sense, not fleetingly, but deep in the soul, happy, at peace. 
Whatever becomes of this pandemic and its consequences for each of us personally and for all of us corporately as communities, countries, it gives us a chance to take stock and ask, what is it for this life? How best can we live? It's a reminder of our mortality, of our own inevitable deaths, of the fragile vulnerability of life. Realities that often seem obscure, that are pushed by the press of the day-to-day to the periphery, where they can be ignored and forgotten. Tolstoy brings them into focus here and now. So this is a story of death that raises the question of life, because our awareness of mortality, our sense of the finite, limited character, the scarcity of this life, is what awakens us to ask how we should spend the time we have. Tolstoy's genius is to bring out from within the superficialities and selfishness, the low-level nihilism of Ivan Ilyich's life, a slow but tectonic movement of his own self-knowledge, in which what is most real, though long neglected, comes at last back into view. This is the first of a new series of podcasts in which we will share and discuss works of literature and the perennial questions and truths they explore and illuminate. Here, then, is Tolstoy's masterpiece novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Nikolaevich Tolstoy Translated by Louise and Almer Maud Chapter 1 During an interval in the Melvinsky trial in the large building of the law courts, the members and public prosecutor met in Ivan Yegorovich Shebek's private room, where the conversation turned on the celebrated Krasovsky case. Fyodor Vasilievich warmly maintained that it was not subject to their jurisdiction. Ivan Yegorovich maintained the contrary, while Pyotr Ivanovich, not having entered into the discussion at the start, took no part in it, but looked through the gazette, which had just been handed in. Gentlemen, he said, Ivan Ilyich has died. You don't say so. Here, read it yourself, replied Pyotr Ivanovich, handing Fyodor Vizilievich the paper, still damp from the press. Surrounded by a black border were the words Praskovia Fyodorovna Gelovina, with profound sorrow, informs relatives and friends of the demise of her beloved husband, Ivan Ilyich Gelovin, member of the Court of Justice, which occurred on February the 4th of this year, 1882. The funeral would take place on Friday at one o'clock in the afternoon. Ivan Ilyich had been a colleague of the gentlemen present and was liked by them all. He had been ill for some weeks with an illness said to be incurable. His post had been kept open for him, but there had been conjectures that in case of his death, Alexov might receive his appointment and that either Vinikov or Stavl would, ex- would succeed Alexov. So on receiving the news of Ivan Ilyich's death, The first thought of each of the gentlemen in that private room was of the changes and promotions it might occasion among themselves or their acquaintances. I shall be sure to get Stabel's place or Vinikov's, thought Fyodor Vasilievich, 
I was promised that long ago. And the promotion means an extra 800 rubles a year for me besides the allowance. Now I must apply for my brother-in-law's transfer from Kaluga, thought Pyotr Ivanovich. My wife will be very glad, and then she won't be able to say that I never do anything for her relations. I thought he would never leave his bed again, said Pyotr Ivanovich aloud. It's very sad. But what really was the matter with him? The doctors couldn't say, or at least they could, but each of them said something different. When last I saw him, I thought he was getting better. And I haven't been to see him since the holidays. I always meant to go. Had he any property? I think his wife had a little, but something quite trifling. We shall have to go see her. But they live so terribly far away. Far away from you, you mean. Everything's far away from your place. You see, he never can forgive my living on the other side of the river, said Pyotr Ivanovich, smiling at Shebek. Then, still talking of the distances between different parts of the city, they returned to the court. Besides considerations as to the possible transfers and promotions likely to result from Ivan Ilyich's death, the mere fact of the death of a near acquaintance aroused, as usual, in all who heard of it, the complacent feeling that it is he who is dead and not I. Each one thought or felt, well, he's dead, but I'm alive. But the more intimate of Ivan Ilyich's acquaintances, his so-called friends, could not help thinking also that they would now have to fulfill the very tiresome demands of propriety by attending the funeral service and paying a visit of condolence to the widow. Fyodor Vasilievich and Pyotr Ivanovich had been his nearest acquaintances. Pyotr Ivanovich had studied law with Ivan Ilyich and had considered himself to be under obligations to him. Having told his wife at dinner time of Ivan Ilyich's death, and of his conjecture that it might be possible to get her brother transferred to their circuit, Pyotr Ivanovich sacrificed his usual nap, put on his evening clothes, and drove to Ivan Ilyich's house. At the entrance stood a carriage and two cabs. Leaning against the wall in the hall downstairs near the cloak stand was a coffin lid covered with a cloth of gold ornamented with gold cord and tassels that had been polished up with metal powder. Two ladies in black were taking off their fur coats. Pyotr Ivanovich recognized one of them as Ivan Ilyich's sister, but the other was a stranger to him. His colleague Schwartz was just coming downstairs. But on seeing Pyotr Ivanovich enter, he stopped and winked at him as if to say, Ivan Ilyich has made a mess of things, not like you and me. Schwartz's face, with his Piccadilly whiskers and his slim figure in evening dress, had as usual an air of elegant solemnity, which contrasted with the playfulness of his character and had a special piquancy here, or so it seemed to Pyotr Ivanovich. Pyotr Ivanovich allowed the ladies to precede him and slowly followed them upstairs. Schwartz did not come down, but remained where he was, and Pyotr Ivanovich understood that he wanted to arrange where they should play bridge that evening. The ladies went upstairs to the widow's room, and Schwartz, with seriously compressed lips, but a playful look in his eyes, indicated by a twist of his eyebrows the room to the right where the body lay. Pyotr Ivanovich, like everyone else on such occasions, entered feeling uncertain what he would have to do. All he knew was that at such times, it is always safe to cross oneself. But he was not quite sure whether one should make obeisances while doing so. 
He therefore adopted a middle course. On entering the room, he began crossing himself and made a slight movement resembling a bow. At the same time, as far as the motion of his head and arm allowed, he surveyed the room. Two young men, apparently nephews, one of whom was a high school pupil, were leaving the room, crossing themselves as they did so. An old woman was standing motionless, and a lady with strangely arched eyebrows was saying something to her in a whisper. A vigorous, resolute church reader in a frock coat was reading something in a loud voice with an expression that precluded any contradiction. The butler's assistant, Gerasim, stepping lightly in front of Pyotr Ivanovich, was strewing something on the floor. Noticing this, Pyotr Ivanovich was immediately aware of a faint odor of a decomposing body. The last time he had called on Ivan Ilyich, Pyotr Ivanovich had seen Gerasim in the study. Ivan Ilyich had been particularly fond of him, and he was performing the duty of a sick nurse. Pyotr Ivanovich continued to make the sign of the cross, slightly inclining his head in an intermediate direction between the coffin, the reader, and the icons on the table in the corner of the room. Afterwards, when it seemed to him that this movement of his arm in crossing himself had gone on too long, he stopped and began to look at the corpse. The dead man lay, as dead men always lie, in especially heavy way, his rigid limbs sunk in the soft cushions of the coffin, with the head forever bowed on the pillow, his yellow waxen brow, with bald patches over his sunken temples, was thrust up in the way peculiar to the dead, the protruding nose seeming to press on the upper lip. He was much changed and grown even thinner since Pyotr Ivanovich had last seen him. But, as is always the case with the dead, his face was handsomer and, above all, more dignified than when he was alive. The expression on the face said that what was necessary had been accomplished, and accomplished rightly. Besides this, there was in that expression a reproach and a warning to the living. This warning seemed to Pyotr Ivanovich out of place, or at least not applicable to him. He felt a certain discomfort, and so he hurriedly crossed himself once more and turned and went out of the door, too hurriedly and too regardless of propriety, as he himself was aware. Schwartz was waiting for him in the adjoining room, with legs spread wide apart and both hands toying with his top hat behind his back. The mere sight of that playful, well-groomed, and elegant figure refreshed Pyotr Ivanovich. He felt that Schwartz was above all these happenings and would not surrender to any depressing influences. His very look said that this incident of a church service for Ivan Ilyich could not be a sufficient reason for infringing the order of the session. In other words, that it would certainly not prevent his unwrapping a new pack of cards and shuffling them that evening while a footman placed fresh candles on the table. In fact, that there was no reason for supposing that this incident would hinder their spending the evening agreeably. Indeed, he said this in a whisper as Pyotr Ivanovich passed him, proposing that they should meet for a game at Fyodor Vasilievich's. But apparently Pyotr Ivanovich was not destined to play bridge that evening. Praskovia Fyodorovna, a short, fat woman who, despite all efforts to the contrary, had continued to broaden steadily from her shoulders downwards, and who had the same extraordinarily arched eyebrows as the lady who had been standing by the coffin, dressed all in black, her head covered with lace, came out of her own room with some other ladies, 
conducted them to the room where the dead body lay and said, the service will begin immediately. Please go in. Schwartz, making an indefinite bow, stood still, evidently neither accepting nor declining this invitation. Praskovia Fyodorovna, recognizing Pyotr Ivanovich, sighed, went close up to him, took his hand, and said, I know you were a true friend to Ivan Ilyich, and looked at him, awaiting some suitable response. And Pyotr Ivanovich knew that just as it had been the right thing to cross himself in that room, so what he had to do here was to press her hand, sigh, and say, believe me. So he did all this, and as he did it, felt that the desired result had been achieved, that both he and she were touched. Come with me, I want to speak to you before it begins, said the widow. Give me your arm. Pyotr Ivanovich gave her his arm, and they went to the inner rooms, passing Schwartz, who winked at Pyotr Ivanovich compassionately. That does for our bridge. Don't object if we find another player. Perhaps you can cut in when you do escape, said his playful look. Pyotr Ivanovich sighed still more deeply and despondently, and Praskovia Fyodorovna pressed his arm gratefully. When they reached the drawing room, upholstered in pink cretonne and lighted by a dim lamp, they sat down at the table, she on a sofa and Pyotr Ivanovich on a low poof, the springs of which yielded spasmodically under his weight. Praskovia Fyodorovna had been on the point of warning him to take another seat, but felt that such a warning was out of keeping with her present condition, and so changed her mind. As he sat down on the poof, Pyotr Ivanovich recalled how Ivan Ilyich had arranged this room and had consulted him regarding this pink cretonne with green leaves. The whole room was full of furniture and knick-knacks, and on her way to the sofa, the lace of the widow's black shawl caught on the edge of the table. Pyotr Ivanovich rose to detach it, and the springs of the poof, relieved of his weight, rose also and gave him a push. The widow began detaching her shawl herself, and Pyotr Ivanovich again sat down, suppressing the rebellious springs of the poof under him. But the widow had not quite freed herself, and Pyotr Ivanovich got up again, and again the poof rebelled and even creaked. When this was all over, she took out a clean cambric handkerchief and began to weep. The episode with the shawl and the struggle with the poof had cooled Pyotr Ivanovich's emotions, and he sat there with a sullen look on his face. This awkward situation was interrupted by Sokolov, Ivan Ilyich's butler, who came to report that the plot in the cemetery that Praskovia Fyodorovna had chosen would cost 200 rubles. She stopped weeping and, looking at Pyotr Ivanovich with the air of a victim, remarked in French that it was very hard for her. Pyotr Ivanovich made a silent gesture signifying his full conviction that it must indeed be so. Please smoke, she said in a magnanimous yet crushed voice, and turned to discuss with Sokolov the price of the plot for the grave. Pyotr Ivanovich, while lighting his cigarette, heard her inquiring very circumstantially into the prices of different plots in the cemetery and finally decide which she would take. When that was done, she gave instructions about engaging the choir. Sokolov then left the room. I'll look after everything myself, she told Pyotr Ivanovich, shifting the albums that lay on the table. And noticing that the table was endangered by his cigarette ash, she immediately passed him an ashtray, saying as she did so, I consider it an affectation 
to say that my grief prevents my attending to practical affairs. On the contrary, if anything can, I won't say console me, but distract me, it is seeing to everything concerning him. She again took out her handkerchief as if preparing to cry, but suddenly, as if mastering her feeling, she shook herself and began to speak calmly. But there is something I want to talk to you about. Pyotr Ivanovich bowed, keeping control of the springs of the poof, which immediately began quivering under him. He suffered terribly the last days. Did he? said Pyotr Ivanovich. Oh, terribly! He screamed unceasingly, not for minutes, but for hours. For the last three days, he screamed incessantly. It was unendurable. I cannot understand how I bore it. You could hear him three rooms off. Oh, what I have suffered. Is it possible that he was conscious all that time? asked Pyotr Ivanovich. Yes, she whispered, to the last moment. He took leave of us a quarter of an hour before he died and asked us to take Volodya away. The thought of the suffering of this man he had known so intimately, first as a merry little boy, then as a schoolmate, and later as a grown-up colleague, suddenly struck Pyotr Ivanovich with horror. Despite an unpleasant consciousness of his own in this woman's dissimulation, he again saw that brow and that nose pressing down on the lip and felt afraid for himself. Three days of frightful suffering and the death. What that might suddenly at any time happen to me, he thought, and for a moment felt terrified. But he did not himself know how. The customary reflection at once occurred to him that this had happened to Ivan Ilyich and not to him, and that it should not and could not happen to him, and that to think that it could would be yielding to depression, which he ought not to do as Schwartz's expression plainly showed. After which reflection, Pyotr Ivanovich felt reassured and began to ask with interest about the details of Ivan Ilyich's death, as though death was an accident natural to Ivan Ilyich, but certainly not to himself. After many details of the really dreadful physical sufferings Ivan Ilyich had endured, which details he learnt only from the effect those sufferings had produced on Praskovia Fyodorovna's nerves, the widow apparently found it necessary to get to business. Oh, Pyotr Ivanovich, how hard it is, how terribly, terribly hard! And she again began to weep. Pyotr Ivanovich sighed and waited for her to finish blowing her nose. When she had done so, he said, Believe me, and she again began talking and brought out what was evidently her chief concern with him, namely, to question him as to how she could obtain a grant of money from the government on the occasion of her husband's death. She made it appear that she was asking Pyotr Ivanovich's advice about her pension, but he soon saw that she already knew about that to the minutest detail, more even than he did himself. She knew how much could be got out of the government in consequence of her husband's death, but wanted to find out whether she could not possibly extract something more. Pyotr Ivanovich tried to think of some means of doing so, but after reflecting for a while and, out of propriety, condemning the government for its niggardliness, he said he thought that nothing more could be got. Then she sighed and evidently began to devise means of getting rid of her visitor. Noticing this, he put out his cigarette, rose, pressed her hand, and went out into the anteroom. 
In the dining room where the clock stood that Ivan Ilyich had liked so much and had bought at an antique shop, Pyotr Ivanovich met a priest and a few acquaintances who had come to attend the service, and he recognized Ivan Ilyich's daughter, a handsome young woman. She was in black, and her slim figure appeared slimmer than ever. She had a gloomy, determined, almost angry expression, and bowed to Pyotr Ivanovich as though he were in some way to blame. Behind her, with the same offended look, stood a wealthy young man, an examining magistrate, whom Pyotr Ivanovich also knew and who was her fiancé, as he had heard. He bowed mournfully to them and was about to pass into the death chamber, when from under the stairs appeared the figure of Ivan Ilyich's schoolboy son, who was extremely like his father. He seemed a little Ivan Ilyich, such as Pyotr Ivanovich remembered when they studied law together. His tear-stained eyes had in them the look that is seen in the eyes of boys of thirteen or fourteen who are not pure-minded. When he saw Pyotr Ivanovich, he scowled morosely and shamefacedly. Pyotr Ivanovich nodded to him and entered the death chamber. The service began. Candles, groans, incense, tears, and sobs. Pyotr Ivanovich stood looking gloomily down at his feet. He did not look once at the dead man, did not yield to any depressing influence, and was one of the first to leave the room. There was no one in the anteroom, but Gerasim darted out of the dead man's room, rummaged with his strong hands among the fur coats to find Pyotr Ivanovich's, and helped him on with it. Well, friend Gerasim, said Pyotr Ivanovich, so as to say something. It's a sad affair, isn't it? It's God's will. We shall all come to it some day," said Gerasim, displaying his teeth, the even white teeth of a healthy peasant, and, like a man in the thick of urgent work, he briskly opened the door, called the coachman, helped Pyotr Ivanovich into the sledge, and sprang back to the porch, as if in readiness for what he had to do next. Pyotr Ivanovich found the fresh air particularly pleasant after the smell of incense, the dead body, and carbolic acid. Where to, sir? asked the coachman. It's not too late even now. I'll call round on Fyodor Vasilievich. He accordingly drove there and found them just finishing the first rubber, so that it was quite convenient for him to cut in. Chapter 2 Ivan Ilyich's life had been most simple and most ordinary, and therefore most terrible. He had been a member of the Court of Justice and died at the age of 45. His father had been an official who, after serving in various ministries and departments in Petersburg, had made the sort of career which brings men to positions from which, by reason of their long service, they cannot be dismissed, though they are obviously unfit to hold any responsible position, and for whom, therefore, posts are specially created, which, though fictitious, carry salaries of from six to ten thousand rubles that are not fictitious, and in receipt of which they live unto a great age. Such was the privy councillor and superfluous member of various superfluous institutions, Ilya Ipimovich Galovin. He had three sons, of whom Ivan Ilyich was the second. The eldest son was following in his father's footsteps, only in another department, and was already approaching that stage in the service at which a similar sinecure would be reached. The third son was a failure. 
He had ruined his prospects in a number of positions and was not serving in the railway department. His father and brothers, and still more their wives, not merely disliked meeting him, but avoided remembering his existence unless compelled to do so. His sister had married Baron Greff, a Petersburg official of her father's type. Ivan Ilyich was le phénix de la famille, as people said. He was neither as cold and formal as his elder brother, nor as wild as the younger, but was a happy mean between them, an intelligent, polished, lively, and agreeable man. He had studied with his younger brother at the School of Law, but the latter had failed to complete the course and was expelled when he was in the fifth class. Ivan Ilyich finished the course well. Even when he was at the School of Law, he was just what he remained for the rest of his life, a capable, cheerful, good-natured, and sociable man. Though strict in the fulfillment of what he considered to be his duty, and he considered his duty to be what was so considered by those in authority. Neither as a boy nor as a man was he a toady, but from early youth was by nature attracted to people of high station as a fly is drawn to the light, assimilating their ways and views of life and establishing friendly relations with them. All the enthusiasms of childhood and youth passed without leaving much trace on him. He succumbed to sensuality, to vanity, and latterly among the highest classes, to liberalism, but always within limits which his instinct unfailingly indicated to him as correct. At school he had done things which had formerly seemed to him very horrid and made him feel disgusted with himself when he did them. But when later on he saw that such actions were done by people of good position and that they did not regard them as wrong, he was able not exactly to regard them as right, but to forget about them entirely or not be at all troubled at remembering them. Having graduated from the School of Law and qualified for the 10th rank of the civil service, and having received money from his father for his equipment, Ivan Ilyich ordered himself clothes at Sharmer's, the fashionable tailor, hung a medallion inscribed Respice Finem on his watch chain, took leave of his professor and the prince who was patron of the school, had a farewell dinner with his comrades at Danon's first-class restaurant, and with his new and fashionable portmanteau, linen, clothes, shaving, and other toilet appliances, and a traveling rug, all purchased at the best shops, he set off for one of the provinces where, through his father's influence, he had been attached to the governor as an official for special service. In the province, Ivan Ilyich soon arranged as easy and agreeable a position for himself as he had had at the School of Law. He performed his official task, made his career, and at the same time amused himself pleasantly and decorously. Occasionally, he paid official visits to country districts where he behaved with dignity both to his superiors and inferiors, and performed the duties entrusted to him, which related chiefly to the sectarians, with an exactness and incorruptible honesty, of which he could not but feel proud. In official matters, despite his youth and taste for frivolous gaiety, he was exceedingly reserved, punctilious, and even severe. But in society he was often amusing and witty, and always good-natured, correct in his manner, and bon enfant, as the governor and his wife, with whom he was like one of the family, used to say of him. In the province he had an affair with a lady who made advances to the elegant young lawyer, and there was also a milliner, and there were carousals with Edge the Camp who visited the district, 
and after supper visits to a certain outlying street of doubtful reputation. And there was, too, some obsequiousness to his chief and even to his chief's wife. But all this was done with such a tone of good breeding that no hard names could be applied to it. It all came under the heading of the French saying, Il faut que jeunesse se passe. It was all done with clean hands, in clean linen, with French phrases, and above all, among people of the best society and consequently with the approval of people of rank. So Ivan Ilyich served for five years and then came a change in his official life. The new and reformed judicial institutions were introduced and new men were needed. Ivan Ilyich became such a new man. He was offered the post of an examining magistrate and he accepted it though the post was in another province and obliged him to give up the connections he had formed and to make new ones. His friends meant to give him a send-off. They had a group photograph taken and presented him with a silver cigarette case, and he set off to his new post. As examining magistrate, Ivan Ilyich was just as come il faut and decorous a man, inspiring general respect and capable of separating his official duties from his private life, as he had been when acting as an official on special service. His duties now as examining magistrate were far more interesting and attractive than before. In his former position, it had been pleasant to wear an undress uniform made by Sharmer and to pass through the crowd of petitioners and officials who were timorously awaiting an audience with the governor and who envied him as with free and easy gait he went straight into his chief's private room to have a cup of tea and a cigarette with him. But not many people had then been directly dependent on him. Only polite officials and the sectarians when he went on special missions. And he liked to treat them politely, almost as comrades, as if he were letting them feel that he who had the power to crush them was treating them in this simple, friendly way. There were then but few such people. But now, as an examining magistrate, Ivan Ilyich felt that everyone, without exception, even the most important and self-satisfied, was in his power, and that he need only write a few words on a sheet of paper with a certain heading, and this or that important, self-satisfied person would be brought before him in the role of an accused person or a witness, and if he did not choose to allow him to sit down, would have to stand before him and answer his questions. Ivan Ilyich never abused his power. He tried, on the contrary, to soften its expression but the consciousness of it and the possibility of softening its effect supplied the chief interest and attraction of his office. In his work itself, especially in his examinations, he very soon acquired a method of eliminating all considerations irrelevant to the legal aspect of the case and reducing even the most complicated case to a form in which it would be presented on paper only in its externals completely excluding his personal opinion of the matter, while above all observing every prescribed formality. The work was new, and Ivan Ilyich was one of the first men to apply the new code of 1864. On taking up the post of examining magistrate in a new town, he made new acquaintances and connections, placed himself on a new footing, and assumed a somewhat different tone. He took up an attitude of rather dignified aloofness towards the provincial authorities, but picked out the best circle of legal gentlemen and wealthy gentry living in the town, and assumed a tone of slight dissatisfaction with the government, of moderate liberalism, and of enlightened citizenship. At the same time, 
Without at all altering the elegance of his toilet, he ceased shaving his chin and allowed his beard to grow as it pleased. Ivan Ilyich settled down very pleasantly in this new town. The society there, which inclined towards opposition to the governor, was friendly, his salary was larger, and he began to play vint, a form of bridge, which he found added not a little to the pleasure of life, for he had a capacity for cards, played good-humouredly, and calculated rapidly and astutely, so that he usually won. After living there for two years, he met his future wife, Praskovia Fyodorovna Mikhail, who was the most attractive, clever, and brilliant girl of the set in which he moved, and among other amusements and relaxations from his labors as examining magistrate, Ivan Ilyich established light and playful relations with her. While he had been an official on special service, he had been accustomed to dance, but now as an examining magistrate, it was exceptional for him to do so. If he danced now, he did it as if to show that though he served under the reformed order of things and had reached the fifth official rank, yet when it came to dancing, he could do it better than most people. So at the end of an evening, he sometimes danced with Praskovia Fyodorovna, and it was chiefly during these dances that he captivated her. She fell in love with him. Ivan Ilyich had at first no definite intention of marrying, but when the girl fell in love with him, he said to himself, Really? Why shouldn't I marry? Praskovia Fyodorovna came of a good family, was not bad-looking, and had some little property. Ivan Ilyich might have aspired to a more brilliant match, but even this was good. He had a salary, and she, he hoped, would have an equal income. She was well-connected, and was a sweet, pretty, and thoroughly correct young woman. To say that Ivan Ilyich married because he fell in love with Praskovia Fyodorovna and found that she sympathized with his views of life would be as incorrect to say that he married because his social circle approved of the match. He was swayed by both these considerations. The marriage gave him personal satisfaction, and at the same time it was considered the right thing by the most highly placed of his associates. So Ivan Ilyich got married. The preparation for marriage and the beginning of married life with its conjugal caresses, the new furniture, new crockery, and new linen, were very pleasant until his wife became pregnant, so that Ivan Ilyich had begun to think that marriage would not impair the easy, agreeable, gay, and always decorous character of his life, approved of by society and regarded by himself as natural, but would even improve it. But from the first months of his wife's pregnancy, something new, unpleasant, depressing, and unseemly, and from which there was no way of escape, unexpectedly showed itself. His life, without any reason, the gaiety de coeur, as Ivan Ilyich expressed it to himself, began to disturb the pleasure and propriety of their life. She began to be jealous without any cause, expected him to devote his whole attention to her, found fault with everything, and made coarse and ill-mannered scenes. At first, Ivan Ilyich hoped to escape from the unpleasantness of this state of affairs by the same easy and decorous relation to life that had served him heretofore. He tried to ignore his wife's disagreeable moods, continued to live in his usual easy and pleasant way, invited friends to his house for a game of cards, and also tried going out to his club or spending the evening with friends. But one day, his wife began upbraiding him so vigorously, using such coarse words, 
and continued to abuse him every time he did not fulfill her demands, so resolutely and with such evident determination not to give way till he submitted, that is, till he stayed at home and was just as bored as she was, that he became alarmed. He now realized that matrimony, at any rate with Praskovia Fyodorovna, was not always conducive to the pleasures and amenities of life, but on the contrary, often infringed both comfort and propriety, and that he must therefore entrench himself against such infringement. And Ivan Ilyich began to seek for means of doing so. His official duties were the one thing that imposed upon Praskovia Fyodorovna, and by means of his official work and the duties attached to it, he began struggling with his wife to secure his own independence. With the birth of their child, the attempts to feed it and the various failures in doing so, and with the real and imaginary illnesses of mother and child, in which Ivan Ilyich's sympathy was demanded, but about which he understood nothing, the need of securing for himself an existence outside his family became still more imperative. As his wife grew more irritable and exacting, Ivan Ilyich transferred the center of gravity of his life more and more to his official work, so did he grow to like his work better and became more ambitious than before. Very soon, within a year of his wedding, Ivan Ilyich had realized that marriage, though it may add some comforts to life, is in fact a very intricate and difficult affair, towards which, in order to perform one's duty, that is, to lead a decorous life approved of by society, one must adopt a definite attitude, just as towards one's official duties. And Ivan Ilyich evolved such an attitude towards married life. He only required of it those conveniences, dinner at home, housewife, and bed, which it could give him, and above all, that propriety of external forms required by public opinion. For the rest, he looked for light-hearted pleasure and propriety, and was very thankful when he found them, but if he met with antagonism and querulousness, he at once retired into his separate, fenced-off world of official duties, where he found satisfaction. Ivan Ilyich was esteemed a good official, and after three years was made assistant public prosecutor. His new duties, their importance, the possibility of indicting and imprisoning anyone he chose, the publicity his speeches received, and the success he had in all these things, made his work still more attractive. More children came. His wife became more and more querulous and ill-tempered. But the attitude Ivan Ilyich had adopted towards his home life rendered him almost impervious to her grumbling. After seven years' service in that town, he was transferred to another province as public prosecutor. They moved but were short of money, and his wife did not like the place they moved to. Though the salary was higher, the cost of living was greater, besides which two of their children died and family life became still more unpleasant for him. Praskovia Fyodorovna blamed her husband for every inconvenience they encountered in their new home. Most of the conversations between husband and wife, especially as to the children's education, led to topics which recalled former disputes, and these disputes were apt to flare up again at any moment. There remained only those rare periods of amorousness which still came to them at times, but did not last long. These were islets at which they anchored for a while, and then again set out upon that ocean of veiled hostility, which showed itself in their aloofness from one another. This aloofness might have grieved Ivan Ilyich had he considered that it ought not to exist, but he now regarded the position as normal, 
and even made it the goal at which he aimed in family life. His aim was to free himself more and more from those unpleasantnesses and to give them a semblance of harmlessness and propriety. He attained this by spending less and less time with his family, and when obliged to be at home, he tried to safeguard his position by the presence of outsiders. The chief thing, however, was that he had his official duties. The whole interest of his life now centered in the official world, and that interest absorbed him. The consciousness of his power, being able to ruin anybody he wished to ruin, the importance, even the external dignity of his entry into court or meetings with his subordinates, his success with superiors and inferiors, and above all, his masterly handling of cases of which he was conscious, all this gave him pleasure and filled his life, together with chats with his colleagues, dinners, and bridge. So that, on the whole, Ivan Ilyich's life continued to flow as he considered it should do, pleasantly and properly. So things continued for another seven years. His eldest daughter was already 16, another child had died, and only one son was left, a schoolboy and a subject of dissension. Ivan Ilyich wanted to put him in the school of law, but despite him, Praskovia Fyodorovna entered him at the high school. The daughter had been educated at home and had turned out well. The boy did not learn badly either. Chapter 3 So Ivan Ilyich lived for 17 years after his marriage. He was already a public prosecutor of long standing and had declined several proposed transfers while awaiting a more desirable post, when an unanticipated and unpleasant occurrence quite upset the peaceful course of his life. He was expecting to be offered the post of presiding judge in a university town, but Happy somehow came to the front and obtained the appointment instead. Ivan Ilyich became irritable, reproached Happy, and quarreled both with him and with his immediate superiors, who became colder to him and again passed over him when other appointments were made. This was in 1880, the hardest year of Ivan Ilyich's life, It was then that it became evident, on the one hand, that his salary was insufficient for them to live on, and on the other, that he had been forgotten. And not only this, but that what was for him the greatest and most cruel injustice appeared to others a quite ordinary occurrence. Even his father did not consider it his duty to help him. Ivan Ilyich felt himself abandoned by everyone, and that they regarded his position with a salary of 3,500 rubles as quite normal and even fortunate. He alone knew that with the consciousness of the injustices done him, with his wife's incessant nagging, and with the debts he had contracted by living beyond his means, his position was far from normal. In order to save money that summer, he obtained leave of absence and went with his wife to live in the country at her brother's place. In the country, without his work, he experienced ennui for the first time in his life, and not only ennui, but intolerable depression, and he decided that it was impossible to go on living like that, and that it was necessary to take energetic measures. Having passed a sleepless night pacing up and down the veranda, he decided to go to Petersburg and bestir himself in order to punish those who had failed to appreciate him and to get transferred to another ministry. Next day, despite many protests from his wife and her brother, he started for Petersburg with the sole object of obtaining a post with a salary of 5,000 rubles a year. 
He was no longer bent on any particular department or tendency or kind of activity. All he now wanted was an appointment to another post with a salary of 5,000 rubles, either in the administration, in the banks, with the railways in one of the Empress Maria's institutions, or even in the customs, but it had to carry with it a salary of 5,000 rubles and be in a ministry other than that in which they had failed to appreciate him. And this quest of Ivan Ilyich was crowned with a remarkable and unexpected success. At Kursk, an acquaintance of his, F.I. Ilyin, got into the first-class carriage, sat down beside Ivan Ilyich, and told him of a telegram just received by the governor of Kursk, announcing that a change was about to take place in the ministry. Pyotr Ivanovich was to be superseded by Ivan Simonovich. The proposed change, apart from its significance for Russia, had a special significance for Ivan Ilyich, because by bringing forward a new man, Pyotr Petrovich, and consequently his friend Zahar Ivanovich, it was highly favorable for Ivan Ilyich, since Zahar Ivanovich was a friend and a colleague of his. In Moscow, this news was confirmed, and on reaching Petersburg, Ivan Ilyich found Zahar Ivanovich and received a definite promise of an appointment in his former Department of Justice. A week later, he telegraphed to his wife, Zahar in Miller's place, I shall receive appointment on presentation of report. Thanks to this change of personnel, Ivan Ilyich had unexpectedly obtained an appointment in his former ministry, which placed him two states above his former colleagues, besides giving him 5,000 rubles salary and 3,500 rubles for expenses connected with his removal. All his ill humor towards his former enemies and the whole department vanished, and Ivan Ilyich was completely happy. He returned to the country more cheerful and contented than he had been for a long time. Praskovia Fyodorovna also cheered up, and a truce was arranged between them. Ivan Ilyich told of how he had been feted by everyone in Petersburg, how all those who had been his enemies were put to shame and now fawned on him, how envious they were of his appointment, and how much everybody in Petersburg had liked him. Praskovia Fyodorovna listened to all this and appeared to believe it. She did not contradict anything, but only made plans for their life in the town to which they were going. Ivan Ilyich saw with delight that these plans were his plans, that he and his wife agreed, and that, after a stumble, his life was regaining its due and natural character of pleasant light-heartedness and decorum. Ivan Ilyich had come back for a short time only, for he had to take up his duties on the 10th of September. Moreover, he needed time to settle into the new place, to move all his belongings from the province, and to buy and order many additional things, in a word, to make such arrangements as he had resolved on, which were almost exactly what Praskovia Fyodorovna, too, had decided on. Now that everything had happened so fortunately, and that he and his wife were at one in their aims and moreover saw so little of one another, they got on together better than they had done since the first years of marriage. Ivan Ilyich had thought of taking his family away with him at once, but the insistence of his wife's brother and her sister-in-law, who had suddenly become particularly amiable and friendly to him and his family, induced him to depart alone. So he departed, and the cheerful state of mind induced by his success and by the harmony between his wife and himself, the one intensifying the other, did not leave him. He found a delightful house, just the thing both he and his wife had dreamt of, spacious, 
lofty reception rooms in the old style, a convenient and dignified study, rooms for his wife and daughter, a study for his son. It might have been specially built for them. Ivan Ilyich himself superintended the arrangements, chose the wallpapers, supplemented the furniture, preferably with antiques which he considered particularly comme il faut, and supervised the upholstering. Everything progressed and progressed and approached the ideal he had set himself. Even when things were only half completed, they exceeded his expectations. He saw what a refined and elegant character, free from vulgarity, it would all have when it was ready. On falling asleep, he pictured to himself how the reception room would look. Looking at the yet unfinished drawing room, he could see the fireplace, the screen, the whatnot, the little chairs dotted here and there, the dishes and plates on the walls, and the bronzes as they would be when everything was in place. He was pleased by the thought of how his wife and daughter, who shared his taste in this matter, would be impressed by it. They were certainly not expecting as much. He had been particularly successful in finding and buying cheaply antiques which gave a particularly aristocratic character to the whole place. But in his letters, he intentionally understated everything in order to be able to surprise them. All this so absorbed him that his new duties, though he liked his official work, interested him less than he had expected. Sometimes he even had moments of absent-mindedness during the court sessions and would consider whether he should have straight or curved cornices for his curtains. He was so interested in it all that he often did things himself, rearranging the furniture or rehanging the curtains. Once when mounting a stepladder to show the upholsterer, who did not understand how he wanted the hangings draped, he made a false step and slipped. But being a strong and agile man, he clung on and only knocked his side against the knob of the window frame. The bruised place was painful, but the pain soon passed, and he felt particularly bright and well just then. He wrote, I feel 15 years younger. He thought he would have everything ready by September, but it dragged on till mid-October. But the result was charming, not only in his eyes, but to everyone who saw it. In reality, it was just what is usually seen in the houses of people of moderate means who want to appear rich, and therefore succeed only in resembling others like themselves. There are damasks, dark wood, plants, rugs, and dull and polished bronzes, all the things people of a certain class have in order to resemble other people of that class. His house was so like the others that it would never have been noticed, but to him it all seemed to be quite exceptional. He was very happy when he met his family at the station and brought them to the newly furnished house, all lit up, where a footman in white tie opened the door into the hall decorated with plants, and when they went on into the drawing room in the study, uttering exclamations of delight. He conducted them everywhere, drank in their praises eagerly, and beamed with pleasure. At tea that evening, when Praskovia Fyodorovna, among other things, asked him about his fall, he laughed and showed them how he had gone flying and had frightened the upholsterer. It's a good thing I'm a bit of an athlete. Another man might have been killed, but I merely knocked myself, just here. It hurts when it's touched, but it's passing off already. It's only a bruise. So they began living in their new home, in which, as always happens, when they got thoroughly settled in, they found they were just one room short, and with the increased income, which, as always, was just a little, some 500 rubles, too little, but it was all very nice. Things went particularly well at first, before everything was finally arranged and while something still had to be done. This thing bought, that thing ordered, another thing moved, and something else adjusted. Though there were some disputes between husband and wife, 
they were both so well satisfied and had so much to do that it all passed off without any serious quarrels. When nothing was left to arrange, it became rather dull and something seemed to be lacking. But they were then making acquaintances, forming habits, and life was growing fuller. Ivan Ilyich spent his mornings at the law court and came home to dinner, and at first he was generally in good humor, though he occasionally became irritable just on account of his house. Every spot on the tablecloth or the upholstery and every broken window-blind string irritated him. He had devoted so much trouble to arranging it all that every disturbance of it distressed him. But on the whole, his life ran its course as he believed life should do, easily, pleasantly, and decorously. He got up at nine, drank his coffee, read the paper, and then put on his undress uniform and went to the law courts. There the harness in which he worked had already been stretched to fit him, and he donned it without a hitch. Petitioners, inquiries at the chancery, the chancery itself, and the sittings public and administrative. In all this, the thing was to exclude everything fresh and vital, which always disturbs the regular course of official business, and to admit only official relations with people, and then only on official grounds. A man would come, for instance, wanting some information. Ivan Ilyich, as one in whose sphere the matter did not lie, would have nothing to do with him. But if the man had some business with him in his official capacity, something that could be expressed on officially stamped paper, he would do everything, positively everything he could, within the limits of such relations, and in doing so would maintain the semblance of friendly human relations, that is, would observe the courtesies of life. As soon as the official relations ended, so did everything else. Ivan Ilyich possessed this capacity to separate his real life from the official side of affairs and not mix the two in the highest degree, and by long practice and natural aptitude had brought it to such a pitch that sometimes, in the manner of a virtuoso, he would even allow himself to let the human and official relations mingle. He let himself do this just because he felt that he could at any time he chose resume the strictly official attitude again and drop the human relation, and he did it all easily, pleasantly, correctly, and even artistically. In the intervals between the sessions, he smoked, drank tea, chatted a little about politics, a little about general topics, a little about cards, but most of all about official appointments. Tired, but with the feelings of a virtuoso, one of the first violins who has played his part in an orchestra with precision. He would return home to find that his wife and daughter had been out paying calls or had a visitor and that his son had been to school, had done his homework with his tutor and was surely beginning what is taught at high schools. Everything was as it should be. After dinner, if they had no visitors, Ivan Ilyich sometimes read a book that was being much discussed at the time and in the evening settled down to work, that is, read official papers, compared the depositions of witnesses and noted paragraphs of the code applying to them. This was neither dull nor amusing. It was dull when he might have been playing bridge, but if no bridge was available, it was at any rate better than doing nothing or sitting with his wife. Ivan Ilyich's chief pleasure was giving little dinners, to which he invited men and women of good social position, and just as his drawing room resembled all other drawing rooms, so did his enjoyable little parties resemble all other such parties. Once they even gave a dance, Ivan Ilyich enjoyed it and everything went off well, except that it led to a violent quarrel with his wife about the cakes and sweets, 
Praskovia Fyodorovna had made her own plans, but Ivan Ilyich insisted on getting everything from an expensive confectioner and ordered too many cakes, and the quarrel occurred because some of those cakes were left over and the confectioner's bill came to 45 rubles. It was a great and disagreeable quarrel. Praskovia Fyodorovna called him a fool and an imbecile, and he clutched at his head and made angry allusions to divorce. But the dance itself had been enjoyable. The best people were there, and Ivan Ilyich had danced with Princess Trufonova, a sister of the distinguished founder of the society Bear My Burden. The pleasures connected with his work were pleasures of ambition. His social pleasures were those of vanity, but Ivan Ilyich's greatest pleasure was playing bridge. He acknowledged that whatever disagreeable incident happened in his life, the pleasure that beamed like a ray of light above everything else was to sit down to bridge with good players, not noisy partners, and of course to four-handed bridge with five players it was annoying to have to stand out, though one pretended not to mind, to play a clever and serious game when the cards allowed it, and then to have supper and drink a glass of wine. After a game of bridge, especially if he had won a little, to win a large sum was unpleasant, Ivan Ilyich went to bed in especially good humor. So they lived. They formed a circle of acquaintances among the best people and were visited by people of importance and by young folk. In their views as to their acquaintances, husband, wife, and daughter were entirely agreed and tacitly and unanimously kept at arm's length and shook off the various shabby friends and relations who, with much show of affection, gushed into the drawing room with its Japanese plates on the walls. Soon, these shabby friends ceased to obtrude themselves, and only the best people remained in the Golovin set. Young men made up to Lisa and Patrishev, an examining magistrate, and Dmitry Ivanovich Patrishev's son and sole heir, began to be so attentive to her that Ivan Ilyich had already spoken to Praskovia Fyodorovna about it and considered whether they should not arrange a party for them or get up some private theatricals. So they lived, and all went well, without change, and life flowed pleasantly. Chapter 4 They were all in good health. It could not be called ill health if Ivan Ilyich sometimes said that he had a queer taste in his mouth and felt some discomfort in his left side. But this discomfort increased, and, though not exactly painful, grew into a sense of pressure in his side, accompanied by ill humor. And his irritability became worse and worse and began to mar the agreeable, easy, and correct life that had established itself in the Galovin family. Quarrels between husband and wife became more and more frequent, and soon the ease and amenity disappeared, and even the decorum was barely maintained. Scenes again became frequent, and very few of those islets remained on which husband and wife could meet without an explosion. Praskovia Fyodorovna now had good reason to say that her husband's temper was trying. With characteristic exaggeration, she said he had always had a dreadful temper and that it had needed all her good nature to put up with it for twenty years. It was true that now the quarrels were started by him. His bursts of temper always came just before dinner, often just as he began to eat his soup. 
Sometimes he noticed that a plate or dish was chipped, or the food was not right, or his son put his elbow on the table, or his daughter's hair was not done as he liked it. And for all this, he blamed Praskovia Fyodorovna. At first, she retorted and said disagreeable things to him, but once or twice he fell into such a rage at the beginning of a dinner that she realized it was due to some physical derangement brought on by taking food, and so she restrained herself and did not answer, but only hurried to get the dinner over. She regarded this self-restraint as highly praiseworthy. Having come to the conclusion that her husband had a dreadful temper and made her life miserable, she began to feel sorry for herself, and the more she pitied herself, the more she hated her husband. She began to wish he would die, yet she did not want him to die because then his salary would cease, and this irritated her against him still more. She considered herself dreadfully unhappy just because not even his death could save her, and though she concealed her exasperation, that hidden exasperation of hers increased his irritation also. After one scene in which Ivan Ilyich had been particularly unfair, and after which he had said in, in explanation that he certainly was irritable, but that it was due to his not being well, she said that if he was ill, it should be attended to, and insisted on his going to see a celebrated doctor. He went. Everything took place as he had expected and as it always does. There was the usual waiting and the important air assumed by the doctor, with which he was so familiar, resembling that which he himself assumed in court, and the sounding and listening, and the questions which called for answers that were foregone conclusions and were evidently unnecessary, and the look of importance which implied that, if only you put yourself in our hands, we will arrange everything. We know indubitably how it has to be done, always in the same for everybody alike. It was all just as it was in the law courts. The doctor put on just the same air towards him as he himself put on towards an accused person. The doctor said that so-and-so indicated that there was so-and-so inside the patient, but if the investigation of so-and-so did not confirm this, then he must assume that and that. If he assumed that and that, then and so on. To Ivan Ilyich, only one question was important. Was his case serious or not? But the doctor ignored that inappropriate question. From his point of view, it was not the one under consideration. The real question was to decide between a floating kidney a chronic catar or appendicitis. It was not a question the doctor solved brilliantly, as it seemed to Ivan Ilyich, in favor of the appendix, with the reservation that should an examination of the urine give fresh indications, the matter would be reconsidered. But this was just what Ivan Ilyich had himself brilliantly accomplished a thousand times in dealing with men on trial. The doctor summed up just as brilliantly, looking over his spectacles triumphantly and even gaily at the accused. From the doctor's summing up, Ivan Ilyich concluded that things were bad, but that for the doctor, and perhaps for everybody else, it was a matter of indifference, though for him it was bad. And this conclusion struck him painfully, arousing in him a great feeling of pity for himself and of bitterness towards the doctor's indifference to a matter of such importance. He said nothing of this, but rose, placed the doctor's fee on the table, and remarked with a sigh, We sick people probably often put inappropriate questions, but tell me, in general, is this complaint dangerous or not? The doctor looked at him sternly over his spectacles with one eye, as if to say, 
Prisoner, if you will not keep to the questions put to you, I shall be obliged to have you removed from the court. I have already told you what I consider necessary and proper. The analysis may show something more. And the doctor bowed. Ivan Ilyich went out slowly, seating himself disconsolately in his sledge, and drove home. All the way home, he was going over what the doctor had said, trying to translate those complicated, obscure, scientific phrases into plain language, and find in them an answer to the question, Is my condition bad? Is it very bad? Or is there as yet nothing much wrong? And it seemed to him that the meaning of what the doctor had said was that it was very bad. Everything in the streets seemed depressing. The cabmen, the houses, the passers-by, and the shops were dismal. His ache, this dull, gnawing ache that never ceased for a moment, seemed to have acquired a new and more serious significance from the doctor's dubious remarks. Ivan Ilyich now watched it with a new and oppressive feeling. He reached home and began to tell his wife about it. She listened, but in the middle of his account, his daughter came in with her hat on, ready to go out with her mother. She sat down reluctantly to listen to this tedious story, but could not stand it long, and her mother, too, did not hear him to the end. "'Well, I am very glad,' she said. "'Mine now to take your medicine regularly. Give me the prescription, and I'll send Gerasim to the chemist's.' And she went to get ready to go out. While she was in the room, Ivan Ilyich had hardly taken time to breathe, but he sighed deeply when she left it. Well, he thought, perhaps it isn't so bad after all. He began taking his medicine and following the doctor's directions, which had been altered after the examination of the urine. But then it happened that there was a contradiction between the indications drawn from the examinations of the urine and the symptoms that showed themselves. It turned out that what was happening differed from what the doctor had told him, and that he had either forgotten or blundered or hidden something from him. He could not, however, be blamed for that, and Ivan Ilyich still obeyed his orders implicitly and at first derived some comfort from doing so. From the time of his visit to the doctor, Ivan Ilyich's chief occupation was the exact fulfillment of the doctor's instructions regarding hygiene and the taking of medicine, and the observation of his pain and his excretions. His chief interest came to be people's ailments and people's health. When sickness, deaths, or recoveries were mentioned in his presence, especially when the illness resembled his own, he listened with agitation which he tried to hide, asked questions, and applied what he heard to his own case. The pain did not grow less, but Ivan Ilyich made efforts to force himself to think that he was better. And he could do this so long as nothing agitated him. But as soon as he had any unpleasantness with his wife, any lack of success in his official work, or held bad cards at bridge, he was at once acutely sensible of his disease. He had formerly borne such mischances, hoping soon to adjust what was wrong, to master it and attain success, or make a grand slam. But now every mischance upset him and plunged him into despair. He would say to himself, there now, just as I was beginning to get better and the medicine had begun to take effect, comes this accursed misfortune or unpleasantness. And he was furious with the mishap, 
or with the people who were causing the unpleasantness and killing him, for he felt that this fury was killing him, but he could not restrain it. One would have thought that it should have been clear to him that this exasperation with circumstances and people aggravated his illness, and that he ought therefore to ignore unpleasant occurrences. But he drew the very opposite conclusion. He said that he needed peace, and he watched for everything that might disturb it and became irritable at the slightest infringement of it. His condition was rendered far worse by the fact that he read medical books and consulted doctors. The progress of his disease was so gradual that he could deceive himself when comparing one day with another, the difference was so slight. But when he consulted the doctors, it seemed to him that he was getting worse, and even very rapidly. Yet despite this, he was continually consulting them. That month he went to see another celebrity, who told him almost the same as the first had done, but put his questions rather differently, and the interview with this celebrity only increased Ivan Ilyich's doubts and fears. A friend of a friend of his, a very good doctor, diagnosed his illness again quite differently from the others, and though he predicted recovery, his questions and suppositions bewildered Ivan Ilyich still more and increased his doubts. A homeopathist diagnosed the disease in yet another way and prescribed medicine which Ivan Ilyich took secretly for a week. But after a week, not feeling any improvement and having lost confidence both in the former doctor's treatment and in this one's, he became still more despondent. One day, a lady acquaintance mentioned a cure effected by a wonder-working icon. Ivan Ilyich caught himself listening attentively and began to believe that it had occurred. This incident alarmed him. Has my mind really weakened to such an extent? He asked himself. Nonsense. It's all rubbish. I mustn't give way to nervous fears, but having chosen a doctor must keep strictly to his treatment. That is what I will do. Now it's all settled. I won't think about it, but we'll follow the treatment seriously till summer, and then we shall see. From now, there must be no more of this wavering. This was easy to say, but impossible to carry out. The pain in his side oppressed him and seemed to grow worse and more incessant, while the taste in his mouth grew stranger and stranger. It seemed to him that his breath had a disgusting smell, and he was conscious of a loss of appetite and strength. There was no deceiving himself. Something terrible, new, and more important than anything before in his life was taking place within him of which he alone was aware. Those about him did not understand or would not understand it, but thought everything in the world was going on as usual. That tormented Ivan Ilyich more than anything. He saw that his household, especially his wife and daughter, who were in a perfect whirl of visiting, did not understand anything of it, and were annoyed that he was so depressed and so exacting, as if he were to blame for it. Though they tried to disguise it, he saw that he was an obstacle in their path, and that his wife had adopted a definite line in regard to his illness, and kept to it regardless of anything he said or did. Her attitude was this. You know, she would say to her friends, Ivan Ilyich can't do as other people do and keep to their treatment prescribed for him. One day he'll take his drops and keep strictly to his diet and go to bed in good time. But the next day, unless I watch him, he'll suddenly forget his medicine, eat sturgeon, which is forbidden, and sit up playing cards till one o'clock in the morning. Oh, come, when was that? Ivan Ilyich would ask in vexation. Only once at Pyotr Ivanovich's and yesterday with Shebek. 
Well, even if I hadn't stayed up, this pain would have kept me awake. Be that as it may, you'll never get well like that, but will always make us wretched. Praskovia Fyodorovna's attitude to Ivan Ilyich's illness, as she expressed it both to others and to him, was that it was his own fault and was another of the annoyances he caused her. Ivan Ilyich felt that this opinion escaped her involuntarily, but that did not make it easier for him. At the law courts, too, Ivan Ilyich noticed, or thought he noticed, a strange attitude towards himself. It sometimes seemed to him that people were watching him inquisitively, as a man whose place might soon be vacant. Then again, his friends would suddenly begin to chafe him in a friendly way about his low spirits, as if the awful, horrible, and unheard of thing that was going on within him, incessantly gnawing at him and irresistibly drawing him away, was a very agreeable subject for jests. Schwartz in particular irritated him by his jocularity, vivacity, and savoir-faire, which reminded him of what he himself had been ten years ago. Friends came to make up a set, and they sat down to cards. They dealt, bending the new cards to soften them, and he sorted the diamonds in his hand and found he had seven. His partner said, no trumps, and supported him with two diamonds. What more could be wished for? It ought to be jolly and lively. They would make a grand slam. But suddenly, Ivan Ilyich was conscious of that gnawing pain, that taste in his mouth, and it seemed ridiculous that in such circumstances he should be pleased to make a grand slam. He looked at his partner, Mikhailovich, who wrapped the table with his strong hand and instead of snatching up the tricks, pushed the cards courteously and indulgently towards Ivan Ilyich that he might have the pleasure of gathering them up without the trouble of stretching out his hand for them. Does he think I am too weak to stretch out my arm? thought Ivan Ilyich, and forgetting what he was doing, he over-trumped his partner, missing the grand slam by three tricks. And what was most awful at all was that he saw how upset Mikhail Mikhailovich was about it, but did not himself care. And it was dreadful to realize why he did not care. They all saw that he was suffering and said, We can stop if you are tired. Take a rest. Lie down? No, he was not at all tired, and he finished the rubber. All were gloomy and silent. Ivan Ilyich felt that he had diffused his gloom over them and could not dispel it. They had supper and went away, and Ivan Ilyich was left alone with the consciousness that his life was poisoned and was poisoning the lives of others, and that this poison did not weaken but penetrated more and more deeply into his whole being. With this consciousness and with physical pain besides the terror, he must go to bed, often to lie awake the greater part of the night. Next morning he had to get up again, dress, go to the law courts, speak and write. Or if he did not go out, spend at home those 24 hours a day, each of which was a torture. And he had to live thus all alone on the brink of an abyss, with no one who understood or pitied him. Chapter 5 So one month passed and then another, just before the new year, his brother-in-law came to town and stayed at their house. Ivan Ilyich was at the law courts, and Praskovia Fyodorovna had gone shopping. When Ivan Ilyich came home and entered his study, he found his brother-in-law there, a healthy, florid man, unpacking his portmanteau himself. 
He raised his head on hearing Ivan Ilyich's footsteps and looked up at him for a moment without saying a word. That stare told Ivan Ilyich everything. His brother-in-law opened his mouth to utter an exclamation of surprise, but checked himself, and that action confirmed it all. I have changed, eh? Yes, there is a change. And after that, try as he would to get his brother-in-law to return to the subject of his looks, the latter would say nothing about it. Praskovia Fyodorovna came home and her brother went out to her. Ivan Ilyich locked the door and began to examine himself in the glass, first full face, then in profile. He took up a portrait of himself taken with his wife and compared it with what he saw in the glass. The change in him was immense. Then he bared his arms to the elbow, looked at them, drew the sleeves down again, sat down on an ottoman, and grew blacker than night. No, no, this won't do, he said to himself, and jumped up, went to the table, took up some law papers, and began to read them, but could not continue. He unlocked the door and went into the reception room. The door leading to the drawing room was shut. He approached it on tiptoe and listened. No, you are exaggerating, Praskovia Fyodorovna was saying. Exaggerating? Don't you see it? Why, he's a dead man. Look at his eyes. There's no life in them. But what is it that is wrong with him? No one knows. Nikolaevich, that was another doctor, said something, but I don't know what. And Shesetitsky, this was the celebrated specialist, said quite the contrary. Ivan Ilyich walked away, went to his room, lay down, and began musing. The kidney, a floating kidney. He recalled all the doctors had told him of how it detached itself and swayed about, and by an effort of imagination, he tried to catch that kidney and arrest it and support it. So little was needed for this, it seemed to him. No, I'll go to see Pyotr Ivanovich again. That was the friend whose friend was a doctor. He rang, ordered the carriage, and got ready to go. Where are you going, Jean? asked his wife with a specially sad and exceptionally kind look. This exceptionally kind look irritated him. He looked morosely at her. I must go to see Pyotr Ivanovich. He went to see Pyotr Ivanovich, and together they went to see his friend, the doctor. He was in, and Ivan Ilyich had a long talk with him. Reviewing the anatomical and physiological details of what, in the doctor's opinion, was going on inside him, he understood it all. There was something, a small thing, in the vermiform appendix. It might all come right. Only stimulate the energy of one organ and check the activity of another, then absorption would take place and everything would come right. He got home rather late for dinner, ate his dinner, and conversed cheerfully but could not for a long time bring himself to go back to work in his room. At last, however, he went to his study and did what was necessary, but the consciousness that he had put something aside, an important, intimate matter which he would revert to when his work was done, never left him. When he had finished his work, he remembered that this intimate matter was the thought of his vermiform appendix. But he did not give himself up to it and went to the drawing room for tea. There were callers there, including the examining magistrate, who was a desirable match for his daughter, and they were conversing, playing the piano, and singing. Ivan Ilyich, as Praskovia Fyodorovna remarked, spent that evening more cheerfully than usual, but he never for a moment forgot that he had postponed the important matter of the appendix. At eleven o'clock he said good night and went to his bedroom. 
Since his illness, he had slept alone in a small room next to his study. He undressed and took up a novel by Zola. But instead of reading it, he fell into thought, and in his imagination that desired improvement in the vermiform appendix occurred. There was the absorption and evacuation and the re-establishment of normal activity. Yes, that's it, he said to himself. One need only assist nature, that's all. He remembered his medicine, rose, took it, and lay down on his back, watching for the beneficent action of the medicine and for it to lessen the pain. I need only take it regularly and avoid all injurious influences. I am already feeling better, much better. He began touching his side. It was not painful to the touch. There, I really don't feel it. It's much better already. He put out the light and turned on his side. The appendix is getting better. Absorption is occurring. Suddenly, he felt the old, familiar, dull, gnawing pain, stubborn and serious. There was the same familiar, loathsome taste in his mouth. His heart sank, and he felt dazed. My God, my God, he muttered, again and again, and it will never cease. And suddenly, the matter presented itself in a quite different aspect. Vermiform appendix, kidney, he said to himself, it's not a question of appendix or kidney, but of life and death. Yes, life was there and now it is going. Going and I cannot stop it. Yes, why deceive myself? Isn't it obvious to everyone but me that I'm dying, that it's only a question of weeks, days? It may happen this moment. There was light and now there is darkness. I was here and now I'm going. Where? A chill came over him. His breathing ceased, and he felt only the throbbing of his heart. When I am not, what will there be? There will be nothing. Then where shall I be when I am no more? Can this be dying? No, I don't want to. He jumped up and tried to light the candle, felt for it with trembling hands, dropped candle and candlestick on the floor, and fell back on his pillow. What's the use? It makes no difference, he said to himself, staring with wide open eyes into the darkness. Death. Yes, death. And none of them knows or wishes to know it, and they have no pity for me. Now they are playing. He heard through the door the distant sound of a song and its accompaniment. It's all the same to them, but they will die too. Fools. I first and they later but it will be the same for them. And now they are married, the beasts. Anger choked him and he was agonizingly, unbearably miserable. It is impossible that all men have been doomed to suffer this awful horror. He raised himself. Something must be wrong. I must calm myself, must think it all over from the beginning. And he again began thinking, yes, the beginning of my illness, I knocked my side, but I was still quite well that day and the next. It hurt a little, then rather more. I saw the doctors, then followed despondency and anguish, more doctors, and I drew nearer to the abyss. My strength grew less, and I kept coming nearer and nearer, and now I have wasted away, and there is no light in my eyes. I think of the appendix, but this is death. I think of mending the appendix, and all the while, here is death. Can it really be death? Again, terror seized him, and he gasped for breath. 
He leant down and began feeling for the matches, pressing with his elbow on the stand beside the bed. It was in his way and hurt him. He grew furious with it, pressed on it still harder and upset it. Breathless and in despair, he fell on his back, expecting death to come immediately. Meanwhile, the visitors were leaving. Praskovia Fyodorovna was seeing them off. She heard something fall and came in. What has happened? Nothing. I knocked it over accidentally. She went out and returned with a candle. He lay there, panting heavily, like a man who has run a thousand yards, and stared upwards at her with a fixed look. What is it, Jean? No, oh, nothing. I, I upset it. Why speak of it? She won't understand, he thought. And in truth, she did not understand. She picked up the stand, lit his candle, and hurried away to see another visitor off. When she came back, he still lay in his back, looking upwards. What is it? Do you feel worse? Yes. She shook her head and sat down. Do you know, Jean, I think we must ask Leshetitsky to come and see you here. This meant calling in the famous specialist, regardless of expense. He smiled malignantly and said, No. She remained a little longer and then went up to him and kissed his forehead. While she was kissing him, he hated her from the bottom of his soul and with difficulty refrained from pushing her away. Good night. Please, God, you'll sleep. Yes. Chapter 6 Ivan Ilyich saw that he was dying, and he was in continual despair. In the depth of his heart, he knew he was dying, but not only was he not accustomed to the thought, he simply did not and could not grasp it. The syllogism he had learnt from Kiesvetter's logic, Kies is a man, men are mortal, therefore Kies is mortal, had always seemed to him correct as applied to Kies, but certainly not as applied to himself. That Kies, man in the abstract, was mortal, was perfectly correct. But he was not Kies, not an abstract man, but a creature quite, quite separate from all others. He had been little Vanya, with a mama and a papa, with Mitya and Volodya, with the toys, a coachman and a nurse, afterwards with Katenka, and with all the joys, griefs, and delights of childhood, boyhood, and youth. What did Keyes know of the smell of that striped leather ball Vanya had been so fond of? Had Keyes kissed his mother's hand like that? And did the silk of her dress rustle so for Keyes? Had he rioted like that at school when the pastry was bad? Had Keyes been in love like that? Could Keyes preside at a session as he did? Keyes really was mortal, and it was right for him to die. But for me, little Vanya, Ivan Ilyich, with all my thoughts and emotions, it's altogether a different matter. It cannot be that I ought to die. That would be too terrible. Such was his feeling. If I had to die like Keyes, I would have known it was so. An inner voice would have told me so. But there was nothing of the sort in me, and I and all my friends felt that our case was quite different from that of Keyes. And now, here it is, he said to himself. It can't be. It's impossible. But here it is. How is this? How is one to understand it? He could not understand it, and tried to drive this false, incorrect, morbid thought away, 
and to replace it by other proper and healthy thoughts. But that thought, and not the thought only, but the reality itself, seemed to come and confront him. And to replace that thought, he called up a succession of others, hoping to find in them some support. He tried to get back into the former current of thoughts that had once screened the thought of death from him. But strange to say, all that had formerly shut off hidden and destroyed his consciousness of death, no longer had that effect. Ivan Ilyich now spent most of his time in attempting to reestablish that old current. He would say to himself, I will take up my duties again. After all, I used to live by them. And banishing all doubts, he would go to the law courts, enter into conversation with his colleagues, and sit carelessly as was his wont, scanning the crowd with a thoughtful look, and leaning both his emaciated arms on the arms of his oak chair, bending over as usual to a colleague and drawing his papers nearer, he would interchange whispers with them, and then suddenly raising his eyes and sitting erect would pronounce certain words and open the proceedings. But suddenly, in the midst of those proceedings, the pain in his side, regardless of the stage the proceedings had reached, would begin its own gnawing work. Ivan Ilyich would turn his attention to it and try to drive the thought of it away, but without success. It would come and stand before him and look at him, and he would be petrified, and the light would die out of his eyes, and he would again begin asking himself whether it alone was true, and his colleagues and subordinates would see with surprise and distress that he the brilliant and subtle judge, was becoming confused and making mistakes. He would shake himself, try to pull himself together, manage somehow to bring the sitting to a close, and return home with the sorrowful consciousness that his judicial labors could not, as formerly, hide from him what he wanted them to hide, and could not deliver him from it. And what was worst of all was it drew his attention to itself, not in order to make him take some action, but only that he should look at it, look it straight in the face, look at it, and without doing anything, suffer inexpressibly. And to save himself from this condition, Ivan Ilyich looked for consolations, new screens, and new screens were found and for a while seemed to save him, but then they immediately fell to pieces, or rather became transparent, as if it penetrated them and nothing could veil it. In these latter days, he would go into the drawing room he had arranged, that drawing room where he had fallen, and for the sake of which, how bitterly ridiculous it seemed, he had sacrificed his life, for he knew that his illness originated with that knock. He would enter and see that something had scratched the polished table. He would look for the cause of this and find that it was the bronze ornamentation of an album that had got bent. He would take up the expensive album which he had lovingly arranged and feel vexed with his daughter and her friends for their untidiness, for the album was torn here and there had some photographs turned upside down. Then it would occur to him to place all those things in another corner of the room, near the plants. He would call the footman, but his daughter or wife would come to help him. They would not agree, and his wife would contradict him, and he would dispute and grow angry. But that was all right for then he did not think about it. It was invisible. But then, when he was moving something himself, his wife would say, 
Let the servants do it. You will hurt yourself again. And suddenly it would flash through the screen and he would see it. It was just a flash and he hoped it would disappear, but he would involuntarily pay attention to his side. It sits there as before, gnawing just the same, and he could no longer forget it, but could distinctly see it looking at him from behind the flowers. What is it all for? It really is so. I lost my life over that curtain as I might have done when storming a fort. Is that possible? How terrible and how stupid. It can't be true. It can't, but it is. He would go to his study, lie down, and again be alone with it, face to face with it. And nothing could be done with it except to look at it and shudder. Chapter 7 How it happened, it is impossible to say, because it came about step by step, unnoticed. But in the third month of Ivan Ilyich's illness, his wife, his daughter, his son, his acquaintances, the doctors, the servants, and above all, he himself, were aware that the whole interest he had for other people was whether he would soon vacate his place and at last release the living from the discomfort caused by his presence and be himself released from his sufferings. He slept less and less. He was given opium and hypodermic injections of morphine, but this did not relieve him. The dull depression he experienced in a somnolent condition at first gave him a little relief, but only as something new. Afterwards, it became as distressing as the pain itself, or even more so. Special foods were prepared for him by the doctor's orders, but all those foods became increasingly distasteful and disgusting to him. For his excretions also, special arrangements had to be made, and this was a torment to him every time, a torment from the uncleanliness, the unseemliness, and the smell, and from knowing that another person had to take part in it. But just through his most unpleasant matter, Ivan Ilyich obtained comfort. Gerasim, the butler's young assistant, always came in to carry the things out. Gerasim was a clean, fresh peasant lad, grown stout on town food and always cheerful and bright. At first the sight of him in his clean Russian peasant costume, engaged on that disgusting task, embarrassed Ivan Ilyich. Once when he got up from the commode, too weak to draw up his trousers, he dropped into a soft armchair and looked with horror at his bare, enfeebled thighs with the muscles so sharply marked on them. Gerasim, with a firm, light tread, his heavy boots emitting a pleasant smell of tar and fresh winter air, came in wearing a clean hessian apron, the sleeves of his print shirt tucked over his strong, bare young arms, and refraining from looking at his sick master out of consideration for his feelings, and restraining the joy of life that beamed from his face, he went up to the commode. Gerasim, said Ivan Ilyich in a weak voice. Gerasim started, evidently afraid he might have committed some blunder, and with a rapid movement turned his fresh, kind, simple young face, which just showed the first downy signs of a beard. Yes, sir? That must be very unpleasant for you. You must forgive me. I am helpless. Oh, why, sir? And Gerasim's eyes beamed, 
and he showed his glistening white teeth. What's a little trouble? It's a case of illness with you, sir. And his deft, strong hands did their accustomed task, and he went out of the room, stepping lightly. Five minutes later, he as lightly returned. Ivan Ilyich was still sitting in the same position in the armchair. Gerasim, he said, when the latter had replaced the freshly washed utensil, please come here and help me. Lift me up. It is hard for me to get up, and I have sent Dmitri away. Gerasim went up to him, grasped his master with his strong arms, deftly but gently, in the same way that he stepped, lifted him, supported him with one hand, and with the other drew up his trousers and would have set him down again. But Ivan Ilyich asked to be led to the sofa. Gerasim, without an effort and without apparent pressure, led him, almost lifting him, to the sofa and placed him on it. Thank you. How easily and well you do it all. Gerasim smiled again and turned to leave the room. But Ivan Ilyich felt his presence such a comfort that he did not want to let him go. One thing more, please move up that chair. No, the other one, under my feet. It is easier for me when my feet are raised. Gerasim brought the chair, set it down gently in place, and raised Ivan Ilyich's legs on it. It seemed to Ivan Ilyich that he felt better while Gerasim was holding up his legs. It's better when my legs are higher, he said. Place that cushion under them. Gerasim did so. He again lifted the legs and placed them. And again, Ivan Ilyich felt better while Gerasim held his legs. When he set them down, Ivan Ilyich fancied he felt worse. Gerasim, he said, are you busy now? Not at all, sir, said Gerasim, who had learnt from the townsfolk how to speak to gentlefolk. What have you still to do? What have I to do? I've done everything except chopping the logs for tomorrow. Then hold my legs up a bit higher, can you? Of course I can. Why not? And Gerasim raised his master's legs higher, and Ivan Ilyich thought that in that position he did not feel any pain at all. And how about the logs? Don't trouble about that, sir. There's plenty of time. Ivan Ilyich told Gerasim to sit down and hold his legs, and began to talk to him. And strange to say, it seemed to him that he felt better while Gerasim held his legs up. After that, Ivan Ilyich would sometimes call Gerasim and get him to hold his legs on his shoulders, and he liked talking to him. Gerasim did it all easily, willingly, simply, and with a good nature that touched Ivan Ilyich. Health, strength, and vitality in other people were offensive to him, but Gerasim's strength and vitality did not mortify but soothed him. What tormented Ivan Ilyich most was the deception, the lie, which for some reason they all accepted that he was not dying but was simply ill. And they only need keep quiet and undergo a treatment, and then something very good would result. He, however, knew that do what they would, nothing would come of it, only still more agonizing suffering and death. This deception tortured him, their not wishing to admit what they all knew and what he knew, but wanting to lie to him concerning his terrible condition and wishing and forcing him to participate in that lie. 
Those lies, lies enacted over him on the eve of his death and destined to degrade this awful, solemn act to the level of their visitings, their curtains, their sturgeon for dinner, were a terrible agony for Ivan Ilyich. And strangely enough, many times when they were going through their antics over him, he had been within a hairbreadth of calling out to them, Stop lying! You and I know that I am dying! Then at least stop lying about it! But he had never had the spirit to do it. The awful, terrible act of his dying was, he could see, reduced by those about him to the level of a casual, unpleasant, and almost indecorous incident, as if someone entered a drawing room diffusing an unpleasant odor. And this was done by that very decorum which he had served all his life long. He saw that no one felt for him, because no one even wished to grasp his position. Only Gerasim recognized it and pitied him. And so Ivan Ilyich felt at ease only with him. He felt comforted when Gerasim supported his legs, sometimes all night long, and refused to go to bed, saying, Don't you worry, Ivan Ilyich, I'll get sleep enough later on. Or when he suddenly became familiar and exclaimed, If you weren't sick, it would be another matter, but as it is, why should I grudge a little trouble? Gerasim alone did not lie. Everything showed that he alone understood the facts of the case and did not consider it necessary to disguise them, but simply felt sorry for his emaciated and enfeebled master. Once when Ivan Ilyich was sending him away, he even said straight out, We shall all of us die, so why should I grudge a little trouble? Expressing the fact that he did not think his work burdensome because he was doing it for a dying man and hoped someone would do the same for him when his time came. Apart from this lying, or because of it, what most tormented Ivan Ilyich was that no one pitied him as he wished to be pitied. At certain moments after prolonged suffering, he wished most of all, though he would have been ashamed to confess it, for someone to pity him as a sick child is pitied. He longed to be petted and comforted. He knew he was an important functionary, that he had a beard turning gray, and that therefore what he longed for was impossible, but still he longed for it. And in Gerasim's attitude towards him, there was something akin to what he wished for. And so that attitude comforted him. Ivan Ilyich wanted to weep, wanted to be petted and cried over, and then his colleague Shebek would come, and instead of weeping and being petted, Ivan Ilyich would assume a serious, severe, and profound air, and by force of habit would express his opinion on a decision of the court of cassation, and would stubbornly insist on that view. This falsity around him and within him did more than anything else to poison his last days. Chapter 8 it was morning. He knew it was morning because Gerasim had gone, and Pyotr the footman had come and put out the candles, drawn back one of the curtains, and begun quietly to tidy up. Whether it was morning or evening, Friday or Sunday, made no difference. It was all just the same. The gnawing, unmitigated, agonizing pain, never ceasing for an instant. The consciousness of life inexorably waning, but not yet extinguished the approach of that ever-dreaded and hateful death, which was the only reality, 
and always the same falsity. What were days, weeks, hours in such a case? Will you have some tea, sir? He wants things to be regular and wishes the dental folk to drink tea in the morning, thought Ivan Ilyich, and only said, no. Wouldn't you like to move onto the sofa, sir? He wants to tidy up the room, and I'm in the way. I am uncleanliness and disorder, he thought, and said only, no, leave me alone. The man went on bustling about. Ivan Ilyich stretched out his hand. Pyotr came up, ready to help. What is it, sir? My watch. Pyotr took the watch, which was close at hand, and gave it to his master. Half past eight. Are they up? No, sir, except Vladimir Ivanovich, the son, who has gone to school. Praskovia Fyodorovna ordered me to wake her if you ask for her. Shall I do so? No, there's no need to. Perhaps I'd better have some tea, he thought, and added aloud, Yes, bring me some tea. Pyotr went to the door, but Ivan Ilyich dreaded being left alone. How can I keep him here? Oh, yes, my medicine. Pyotr, give me my medicine. Why not? Perhaps it may still do some good. He took a spoonful and swallowed it. No, it won't help. It's all tomfoolery, all deception, he decided as soon as he became aware of the familiar, sickly, hopeless taste. No, I can't believe in it any longer. But the pain, why this pain? If it would only cease just for a moment. And he moaned. Pyotr turned towards him. It's all right. Go and fetch me some tea. Pyotr went out. Left alone, Ivan Ilyich groaned, not so much with pain, terrible thought that was, as from mental anguish. Always and forever the same, always these endless days and nights. If only it would come quicker, if only what would come quicker? Death? Darkness? No, no, anything rather than death. When Pyotr returned with the tea on a tray, Ivan Ilyich stared at him for a time in perplexity, not realizing who and what he was. Pyotr was disconcerted by that look, and his embarrassment brought Ivan Ilyich to himself. Oh, tea! All right, put it down. Only help me to wash and put on a clean shirt. And Ivan Ilyich began to wash. With pauses for rest, he washed his hands, and then his face, cleaned his teeth, brushed his hair, looked in the glass. He was terrified by what he saw, especially by the limp way in which his hair clung to his pallid forehead. While his shirt was being changed, he knew that he would be still more frightened at the sight of his body, so he avoided looking at it. Finally, he was ready. He drew on a dressing gown, wrapped himself in a plaid, and sat down in the armchair to take his tea. For a moment, he felt refreshed, but as soon as he began to drink the tea, he was again aware of the same taste, and the pain also returned. He finished it with an effort, and then lay down, stretching out his legs, and dismissed Piotr. Always the same. Now a spark of hope flashes up, then a sea of despair rages, and always pain, always pain, always despair, and always the same. When alone, he had a dreadful and distressing desire to call someone, but he knew beforehand that with others present it would be still worse. Another dose of morphine, to lose consciousness. I will tell him, the doctor, that he must think of something else. It's impossible, impossible, to go on like this. 
An hour and another passed like that. But now there is a ring at the doorbell. Perhaps it's the doctor? It is. He comes in fresh, hearty, plump, and cheerful, with that look on his face that seems to say, there now, you're in a panic about something, but we'll arrange it all for you directly. The doctor knows this expression is out of place here, but he has put it on once for all and can't take it off, like a man who has put on a frock coat in the morning to pay a round of calls. The doctor rubs his hands vigorously and reassuringly. Brr, how cold it is. There's such a sharp frost. Just let me warm myself, he says, as if it were only a matter of waiting till he was warm, and then he would put everything right. Well now, how are you? Ivan Ilyich feels that the doctor would like to say, well, how are our affairs? But that even he feels that this would not do, and says instead, what sort of night have you had? Ivan Ilyich looks at him as much to say, are you really never ashamed of lying? But the doctor does not wish to understand this question. And Ivan Ilyich says, just as terrible as ever. The pain never leaves me and never subsides. If only something. Yes, you sick people are always like that. There, now I think I am warm enough. Even Praskovia Fyodorovna, who is so particular, could find no fault with my temperature. Well, now I can say good morning. And the doctor presses his patient's hand. Then, dropping his former playfulness, he begins with a most serious face to examine the patient, feeling his pulse and taking his temperature, and then begins the sounding and auscultation. Ivan Ilyich knows quite well and definitely that all this is nonsense and pure deception. But when the doctor, getting down on his knee, leans over him, putting his ear first higher, then lower, and performs various gymnastic movements over him with a significant expression on his face, Ivan Ilyich submits to it all as he used to submit to the speeches of the lawyers, though he knew very well that they were all lying and why they were lying. The doctor, kneeling on the sofa, is still sounding him when Praskovia Fyodorovna's silk dress rustles at the door, and she is heard scolding Pyotr for not having let her know of the doctor's arrival. She comes in, kisses her husband, and at once proceeds to prove that she has been up a long time already, and only owing to a misunderstanding, failed to be there when the doctor arrived. Ivan Ilyich looks at her, scans her all over, sets against her the whiteness and plumpness and cleanness of her hands and neck, the gloss of her hair, and the sparkle of her vivacious eyes. He hates her with his whole soul, and the thrill of hatred he feels for her makes him suffer from her touch. Her attitude towards him and his diseases is still the same. Just as the doctor had adopted a certain relation to his patient, which he could not abandon, so had she formed one towards him, that he was not doing something he ought to do and was himself to blame, and that she reproached him lovingly for this, and she could not now change that attitude. You see, he doesn't listen to me and doesn't take his medicine at the proper time, and above all, he lies in a position that is no doubt bad for him, with his legs up. She described how he made Gerasim hold his legs up. The doctor smiled with a contemptuous affability that said, What's to be done? These sick people do have foolish fancies of that kind, but we must forgive them. When the examination was over, the doctor looked at his watch, and then Praskovia Fyodorovna announced to Ivan Ilyich that it was, of course, as he pleased, but she had sent today for a celebrated specialist who would examine him and have a consultation with Mikhail Danilovich, their regular doctor. Please don't raise any objections. I am doing this for my own sake, 
she said ironically, letting it be felt that she was doing it all for his sake and only said this to leave him no right to refuse. He remained silent, knitting his brows. He felt that he was surrounded and involved in a mesh of falsity that it was hard to unravel anything. Everything she did for him was entirely for her own sake, and she told him she was doing for herself what she was actually doing for herself, as if that was so incredible that he must understand the opposite. At half past eleven, the celebrated specialist arrived. Again the sounding began, and the significant conversations in his presence and in another room, about the kidneys and the appendix and the questions and answers, with such an air of importance that again, instead of the real question of life and death, which now alone confronted him, the question arose of the kidney and appendix, which were not behaving as they ought to and would now be attached by Mikhail Danilovich and the specialist and forced to amend their ways. The celebrated specialist took leave of him with a serious, though not hopeless, look, and in reply to the timid question Ivan Ilyich, with eyes glistening with fear and hope, put to him as to whether there was a chance of recovery, said that he could not vouch for it, but there was a possibility. The look of hope with which Ivan Ilyich watched the doctor out was so pathetic that Praskovia Fyodorovna, seeing it, even wept as she left the room to hand the doctor his fee. The gleam of hope kindled by the doctor's encouragement did not last long. The same room, the same pictures, curtains, wallpaper, medicine bottles were all there in the same aching, suffering body, and Ivan Ilyich began to moan. They gave him a subcutaneous injection, and he sank into oblivion. It was twilight when he came to, they brought him his dinner and he swallowed some beef tea with difficulty, and then everything was the same again and night was coming on. After dinner at seven o'clock, Praskovia Fyodorovna came into the room in evening dress, her full bosom pushed up by her corset with traces of powder on her face. She had reminded him in the morning that they were going to the theater. Sarah Bernhardt was visiting the town and they had a box, which he had insisted on their taking, now he had forgotten about it, and her toilet offended him, but he concealed his vexation when he remembered that he had himself insisted on their securing a box and going because it would be an instructive and aesthetic pleasure for the children. Praskovia Fyodorovna came in, self-satisfied, but yet with a rather guilty air. She sat down and asked how he was, but, as he saw, only for the sake of asking and not in order to learn about it, knowing that there was nothing to learn, and then went on, to what she really wanted to say, that she would not on any count have gone, but that the box had been taken, and Helen and their daughter were going, as well as Patricia, the examining magistrate, their daughter's fiancé, and that it was out of the question to let them go alone, but that she would have much preferred to sit with him for a while, and he must be sure to follow the doctor's orders while she was away. Oh, and Fyodor Petrovich, the fiancé, would like to come in. May he? And Lisa? All right. Their daughter came in in full evening dress, her fresh young flesh exposed, making a show of that very flesh which in his own case caused so much suffering. Strong, healthy, evidently in love, and impatient with illness, suffering, and death, because they interfered with her happiness. Fyodor Petrovich came in too, in evening dress, his hair curled a la capoule, a tight stiff collar around his long sinewy neck, an enormous white shirt front, 
and narrow black trousers tightly stretched over his strong thighs. He had one white glove tightly drawn on and was holding his opera hat in his hand. Following him, the schoolboy crept in unnoticed in a new uniform, poor little fellow, and wearing gloves. Terribly dark shadows showed under his eyes, the meaning of which Ivan Ilyich knew well. His son had always seemed pathetic to him, and now it was dreadful to see the boy's frightened look of pity. It seemed to Ivan Ilyich that Vasya was the only one besides Gerasim who understood and pitied him. They all sat down and again asked how he was. A silence followed. Lisa asked her mother about the opera glasses, and there was an altercation between mother and daughter as to who had taken them and where they had been put. This occasioned some unpleasantness. Fyodor Petrovich inquired of Ivan Ilyich whether he had ever seen Sarah Bernhardt. Ivan Ilyich did not at first catch the question, but then replied, No, have you seen her before? Yes, in Adrien Le Couvreur. Praskovia Fyodorovna mentioned some roles in which Sarah Bernhardt was particularly good. Her daughter disagreed. Conversation sprang up as to the elegance and realism of her acting, the sort of conversation that is always repeated and is always the same. In the midst of the conversation, Fyodor Petrovich glanced at Ivan Ilyich and became silent. The others also looked at him and grew silent. Ivan Ilyich was staring with glittering eyes straight before him, evidently indignant with them. This had to be rectified, but it was impossible to do so. The silence had to be broken, but for a time no one dared to break it, and they all became afraid that the conventional deception would suddenly become obvious and the truth become plain to all. Lisa was the first to pluck up courage and break that silence, but by trying to hide what everybody was feeling, she betrayed it. Well, if we are going, it's time to start, she said, looking at her watch, a present from her father, and with a faint and significant smile at Fyodor Petrovich, relating to something known only to them. She got up with a rustle of her dress. They all rose, said goodnight, and went away. When they had gone, it seemed to Ivan Ilyich that he felt better. The falsity had gone with them. But the pain remained, that same pain and that same fear that made everything monotonously alike, nothing harder and nothing easier. Everything was worse. Again, minute followed minute, an hour followed hour. Everything remained the same, and there was no cessation. And the inevitable end of it all became more and more terrible. Yes, send Gerasim here, he replied to a question Piotr asked. Chapter 9 His wife returned late at night. She came in on tiptoe, but he heard her, opened his eyes, and made haste to close them again. She wished to send Gerasim away and to sit with him herself, but he opened his eyes and said, No, go away. Are you in great pain? Always the same. Take some opium. He agreed and took some. She went away. Till about three in the morning, he was in a state of stupefied misery. It seemed to him that he and his pain were being thrust into a narrow, deep black sack. But though they were pushed further and further in, they could not be pushed to the bottom. And this, terrible enough in itself, was accompanied by suffering. He was frightened, yet wanted to fall through the sack. He struggled, 
but yet cooperated. And suddenly he broke through, fell, and regained consciousness. Gerasim was sitting at the foot of the bed, dozing quietly and patiently, while he himself lay with his emaciated stockinged legs, resting on Gerasim's shoulders. The same shaded candle was there, and the same unceasing pain. Go away, Gerasim, he whispered. It's all right, sir. I'll stay a while. No, go away. He removed his legs from Gerasim's shoulders, turned sideways onto his arm, and felt sorry for himself. He only waited till Gerasim had gone into the next room, and then restrained himself no longer, but wept like a child. He wept on account of his helplessness, his terrible loneliness, the cruelty of man, the cruelty of God, and the absence of God. He did not expect an answer, and yet wept because there was no answer, and could be none. The pain again grew more acute, but he did not stir and did not call. He said to himself, Go on, strike me. But what is it for? What have I done to thee? What is it for? Then he grew quiet and not only ceased weeping, but even held his breath and became all attention. It was as though he were listening not to an audible voice, but to the voice of his soul, to the current of thoughts arising within him. What is it you want? was the first clear conception capable of expression in words that he heard. What do you want? What do you want? he repeated to himself. What do I want? To live and not to suffer, he answered. And again he listened with such concentrated attention that even his pain did not distract him. To live? How? asked his inner voice. Why, to live as I used to, well and pleasantly. As you lived before, well and pleasantly, the voice repeated. And in imagination, he began to recall the best moments of his pleasant life. But strange to say, none of those best moments of his pleasant life now seemed at all what they had then seemed. None of them except the first recollections of childhood. There in childhood, there had been something really pleasant with which it would be possible to live if it could return. But the child who had experienced that happiness existed no longer. It was like a reminiscence of somebody else. As soon as the period began which had produced the present Ivan Ilyich, all that had then seemed joys now melted before his sight and turned into something trivial and often nasty. And the further he departed from childhood and the nearer he came to the present, the more worthless and doubtful were the joys. This began with the school of law. A little that was really good was still found there, there was light-heartedness, friendship, and hope. But in the upper classes, there had already been fewer of such good moments. Then, during the first years of his official career, when he was in the service of the governor, some pleasant moments again occurred. They were the memories of love for a woman. Then all became confused, and there was still less of what was good. Later on again, there was still less that was good, and the further he went, the less there was. His marriage, a mere accident, then the disenchantment that followed it, his wife's bad breath and the sensuality and hypocrisy, then that deadly official life and those preoccupations about money, a year of it and two and ten and twenty, and always the same thing. 
and the longer it lasted, the more deadly it became. It is as if I had been going downhill while I imagined I was going up. And that is really what it was. I was going up in public opinion, but to the same extent, life was ebbing away from me. And now it is all done, and there is only death. Then what does it mean? Why? It can't be that life is so senseless and horrible. But if it really has been so horrible and senseless, why must I die and die in agony? There is something wrong. Maybe I did not live as I ought to have done, it suddenly occurred to him. But how could that be when I did everything properly, he replied, and immediately dismissed from his mind this, the sole solution of all the riddles of life and death, as something quite impossible. Then what do you want now? To live? Live how? Live as you had lived in the law courts when the usher proclaimed, the judge is coming, the judge is coming, the judge, he repeated to himself, here he is, the judge, but I am not guilty, he exclaimed angrily. What is it for? And he ceased crying, but turning his face to the wall, continued to ponder on the same question. Why and for what purpose is there all this horror? But however much he pondered, he found no answer. And whenever the thought occurred to him, as it often did, that it all resulted from his not having lived as he ought to have done, he at once recalled the correctness of his whole life and dismissed so strange an idea. Chapter 10 Another fortnight passed. Ivan Ilyich now no longer left his sofa. He would not lie in bed, but lay in the sofa, facing the wall nearly all the time. He suffered ever the same unceasing agonies, and in his loneliness pondered always on the same insoluble question. What is this? Can it be that it is death? And the inner voice answered, Yes, it is death. Why these sufferings? And the voice answered, For no reason, they just are so. Beyond and besides this, there was nothing. From the very beginning of his illness, ever since he had first been to see the doctor, Ivan Ilyich's life had been divided between two contrary and alternating moods. Now it was despair and the expectation of this uncomprehended and terrible death, and now hope and an intently interested observation of the functioning of his organs. Now before his eyes there was only a kidney or an intestine that temporarily evaded its duty, and now only that incomprehensible and dreadful death from which it was impossible to escape. These two states of mind had alternated from the very beginning of his illness, but the further it progressed, the more doubtful and fantastic became the conception of the kidney, and the more real the sense of impending death. He had but to call to mind what he had been three months before and what he was now, to call to mind with what regularity he had been going downhill, for every possibility of hope to be shattered. Latterly, during the loneliness in which he found himself as he lay facing the back of the sofa, a loneliness in the midst of a populous town and surrounded by numerous acquaintances and relations, but that yet could not have been more complete anywhere, either at the bottom of the sea or under the earth, during that terrible loneliness, Ivan Ilyich had lived only in memories of the past. 
Pictures of his past rose before him, one after another. They always began with what was nearest in time, and then went back to what was most remote, to his childhood, and rested there. If he thought of the stewed prunes that had been offered him that day, his mind went back to the raw, shriveled French plums of his childhood, their peculiar flavor and the flow of saliva when he sucked their stones, and along with the memory of that taste came a whole series of memories of those days, his nurse, his brother, and their toys. No, I mustn't think of that. It is too painful, Ivan Ilyich said to himself, and brought himself back to the present, to the button on the back of the sofa and the creases in its morocco. Morocco is expensive, but it does not wear well. There had been a quarrel about it. It was a different kind of quarrel and a different kind of Morocco, that time when we tore father's portfolio and were punished, and Mama brought us some tarts. And again his thoughts dwelt on his childhood, and again it was painful, and he tried to banish them and fix his mind on something else. Then again, together with that chain of memories, another series passed through his mind, of how his illness had progressed and grown worse. There also, the further back he looked, the more life there had been. There had been more of what was good in life and more of life itself. The two merged together. Just as the pain went on getting worse and worse, so my life grew worse and worse, he thought. There is one bright spot there at the back, at the beginning of life, and afterwards all becomes blacker and blacker and proceeds more and more rapidly, an inverse ration to the square of the distance from death, thought Ivan Ilyich. And the example of a stone falling downwards with increasing velocity entered his mind. Life, a series of increasing sufferings, flies further and further towards its end, the most terrible suffering. I am flying, he shuddered, shifted himself, and tried to resist, but was already aware that resistance was impossible, and again with eyes weary of gazing but unable to see seeing what was before them, he stared at the back of the sofa and waited, awaiting that dreadful fall and shock and destruction. Resistance is impossible, he said to himself, if I could only understand what it is all for. But that too is impossible. An explanation would be possible if it could be said that I have not lived as I ought to. But it is impossible to say that. And he remembered all the legality, correctitude, and propriety of his life. That, at any rate, can certainly not be admitted, he thought. And his lips smiled ironically, as if someone could see that smile and be taken in by it. There is no explanation. Agony. Death. What for? Chapter 11 Another two weeks went by in this way, and during that fortnight an event occurred that Ivan Ilyich and his wife had desired. Patrishev formally proposed. It happened in the evening. The next day, Praskovia Fyodorovna came into her husband's room, considering how best to inform him of it. But that very night there had been a fresh change for the worse in his condition. She found him still lying on the sofa, but in a different position. He lay on his back, groaning and staring fixedly straight in front of him. She began to remind him of his medicines, but he turned his eyes towards her with such a look that she did not finish what she was saying. So great an animosity, to her in particular, did that look express. For Christ's sake, let me die in peace, he said. 
She would have gone away, but just then their daughter came in and went up to say good morning. He looked at her as he had done at his wife, and in reply to her inquiry about his health, said dryly that he would soon free them all of himself. They were both silent, and after sitting with him for a while, went away. Is it our fault? Lisa said to her mother. It's as if we were to blame. I am sorry for Papa, but why should we be tortured? The doctor came at his usual time. Ivan Ilyich answered yes and no, never taking his angry eyes from him, and at last said, You know you can do nothing for me, so leave me alone. We can ease your sufferings. You can't even do that. Let me be. The doctor went into the drawing room and told Praskovia Fyodorovna that the case was very serious and that the only resource left was opium to allay her husband's sufferings, which must be terrible. It was true, as the doctor said, that Ivan Ilyich's physical sufferings were terrible. But worse than the physical sufferings were his mental sufferings, which were his chief torture. His mental sufferings were due to the fact that that night, as he looked at Gerasim's sleepy, good-natured face with its prominent cheekbones, the question suddenly occurred to him, what if my whole life has been wrong? It occurred to him that what had appeared perfectly impossible before, namely that he had not spent his life as he should have done, might after all be true. It occurred to him that his scarcely perceptible attempts to struggle against what was considered good by the most highly placed people, those scarcely noticeable impulses which he had immediately suppressed, might have been the real thing, and all the rest false. And his professional duties and the whole arrangement of his life and of his family and all of his social and official interests might all have been false. He tried to defend all those things to himself and suddenly felt the weakness of what he was defending. There was nothing to defend. But if that is so, he said to himself, and I am leaving this life with the consciousness that I have lost all that was given me and it is impossible to rectify it, what then? He lay in his back and began to pass his life in review in quite a new way. In the morning when he saw first his footman, then his wife, then his daughter, and then the doctor, their every word and movement confirmed to him the awful truth that had been revealed to him during the night. In them he saw himself, all that for which he had lived, and saw clearly that it was not real at all, but a terrible and huge deception which had hidden both life and death. This consciousness intensified his physical suffering tenfold. He groaned and tossed about and pulled at his clothing which choked and stifled him, and he hated them on that account. He was given a large dose of opium and became unconscious, but at noon his sufferings began again. He drove everybody away and tossed from side to side. His wife came to him and said, Jean, my dear, do this for me. It can't do any harm and often helps. Healthy people often do it. He opened his eyes wide. What? Take communion? Why, it's unnecessary. However... She began to cry. Yes, do, my dear. I'll send for our priest. He is such a nice man. All right, very well, he muttered. 
When the priest came and heard his confession, Ivan Ilyich was softened and seemed to feel a relief from his doubts and consequently from his sufferings, and for a moment there came a ray of hope. He again began to think of the vermiform appendix and the possibility of correcting it. He received the sacrament with tears in his eyes. When they laid him down again afterwards, he felt a moment's ease, and the hope that he might live awoken him again. He began to think of the operation that had been suggested to him. To live! I want to live! He said to himself. His wife came in to congratulate him after his communion, and when uttering the usual conventional words, she added, You feel better, don't you? Without looking at her, he said, Yes. Her dress, her figure, the expression of her face, the tone of her voice, all revealed the same thing. This is wrong. It is not as it should be. All you have lived for and still live for is falsehood and deception, hiding life and death from you. And as soon as he admitted that thought, his hatred and his agonizing physical suffering again sprang up. And with that suffering, a consciousness of the unavoidable approaching end. And to this was added a new sensation of grinding, shooting pain and a feeling of suffocation. The expression of his face when he uttered that yes was dreadful. Having uttered it, he looked her straight in the eyes, turned on his face with a rapidity extraordinary in his weak state, and shouted, Go away! Go away and leave me alone! Chapter 12 From that moment, the screaming began that continued for three days and was so terrible that one could not hear it through two closed doors without horror. At the moment he answered, his wife realized that he was lost, that there was no return, that the end had come, the very end, and his doubts were still unsolved and remained doubts. Oh, 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 he cried in various intonations. He had begun by screaming, I won't, and continued screaming on the letter, oh. For three whole days, during which time did not exist for him, he struggled in that black sack into which he was being thrust by an invisible, resistless force. He struggled as a man condemned to death, struggles in the hands of the executioner, knowing that he cannot save himself. And every moment he felt that despite all his efforts, he was drawing nearer and nearer to what terrified him. He felt that his agony was due to his being thrust into that black hole and still more to his not being able to get right into it. He was hindered from getting into it by his conviction that his life had been a good one. That very justification of his life held him fast and prevented his moving forward, and it caused him most torment of all. Suddenly, some force struck him in the chest and side, making it still harder to breathe, and he fell through the hole, and there at the bottom was a light. What had happened to him was like the sensation one sometimes experiences in a railway carriage, when one thinks one is going backwards while one is really going forwards and suddenly becomes aware of the real direction. Yes, it was not the right thing he said to himself, but that's no matter. It can be done. But what is the right thing? He asked himself and suddenly grew quiet. 
This occurred at the end of the third day, two hours before his death. Just then, his schoolboy son had crept softly in and gone up to the bedside. The dying man was still screaming desperately and waving his arms. His hand fell on the boy's head, and the boy caught it, pressed it to his lips, and began to cry. At that very moment, Ivan Ilyich fell through and caught sight of the light. And it was revealed to him that, though his life had not been what it should have been, this could still be rectified. He asked himself, what is the right thing? And grew still, listening. Then he felt that someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes, looked at his son, and felt sorry for him. His wife came up to him and he glanced at her. She was gazing at him open-mouthed, with undried tears on her nose and cheek and a despairing look on her face. He felt sorry for her too. Yes, I am making them wretched, he thought. They are sorry, but it will be better for them when I die. He wished to say this, but had not the strength to utter it. Besides, why speak? I must act, he thought. With a look at his wife, he indicated his son and said, Take him away. Sorry for him. Sorry for you, too. He tried to add, Forgive me, but said, Forgo, and waved his hand, knowing that he whose understanding mattered would understand. And suddenly it grew clear to him that what had been oppressing him and would not leave him was all dropping away at once from two sides, from ten sides, and from all sides. He was sorry for them. He must act so as not to hurt them, release them and free himself from these sufferings. How good and how simple, he thought. And the pain, he asked himself, what has become of it? Where are you, pain? He turned his attention to it. Yes, here it is. Well, what of it? Let the pain be. And death? Where is it? He sought his former accustomed fear of death and did not find it. Where is it? What death? There was no fear because there was no death. In place of death, there was light. So that's what it is, he suddenly exclaimed aloud. What joy! To him, all this happened in a single instant, and the meaning of that instant did not change. For those present, his agony continued for another two hours. Something rattled in his throat, his emaciated body twitched, then the gasping and rattle became less and less frequent. It is finished, said someone near him. He heard these words and repeated them in his soul. Death is finished, he said to himself. It is no more. He drew in a breath, stopped in the midst of a sigh, stretched out, and died. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's podcast was devoted to reading 
Leo Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. This was the first part of a two-part podcast. The second part is the next episode, a conversation with Dr. Donna Orwin, a scholar of Russian literature at the University of Toronto, about Tolstoy's novella. At Rolston College, we've been thinking a lot about how we can share works of literature with a wide audience. And this two-part podcast is an experiment in that direction. So please feel free to send us a note or leave us a comment and let us know what you think. You can also join our effort to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Upcoming episodes include conversations with the Scottish sculptor Sandy Stoddart, the satirist Andrew Doyle, and the Nobel laureate in economics Vernon Smith. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.